You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. My name is Daniel, and I have the privilege of serving as an usher today. And today's scripture passage is from Luke 19, 11 through 27 from the NIV. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you have been trustworthy with a, in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. The master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them Bring them here, and I will kill them in front of me. This is God's word. Hey, good morning. Good to see you, Ventura. That wasn't entirely true. It actually was on the top of that list two years in a row. (laughs) True story, true story. It's so good to be here with you. It always feels like home. Uh, among family here on the coastlands, and we're so grateful for the ministry of this church, which I know you have been participants in, and as, it's such a blessing for us to be a part of this family of churches, but particularly very fond of this church, and we love you guys and pray for you often. Um, we are continuing to look at the stories of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, and today we are looking at the parable of the Minas, And the question that I wanna ask you today is where is your investment? Where is your investment? And the question is not are you invested, you are. The question is where? Is it in the kingdom of God that will have no end or the things of this world that are frail and fragile and perishing? As we go to prayer, I just wanna ask you to open your hands if you're willing and able before the Lord. This is the only way we come to Christ. Um, If we come empty-handed, he will fill us with himself. If we come full of ourselves, he finds no place to place himself. Father, just as an act of surrender, we open our hands and therefore our lives to you. 
These are hands that so easily cling to the things of this world. As we're talking about money and possessions, these hands cling so tightly to money and possessions. As if what we have, what we've earned, or even what has been given to us can save us. So just as an act of faith, and renouncing those foolish ways of thinking, we, we open our hands to you and acknowledge only Christ can save. Only Christ can give our, our life meaning. Only he can give us the security our hearts really desire. He is the source of all blessing and wisdom and everything that we'd ever want is in him. And we ask, according to your grace, that you would fill us afresh. And may your word this morning fall on good soil that would bear much fruit for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, an author named Babette Buster once said that narrative is our culture's currency and he who tells the best story wins. Who are the influencers of our culture? Who are those who affect change among people? Those who are elected officials, those who come in through two-year or four-year terms, political forces, those who sit in power, the rich, the strong. No, it's those who are writing the scripts. It's the storytellers. Stories are what shape values. Stories change minds. Stories stir motivations. Stories subvert long-held ideas. Stories capture the hearts of masses. Stories unify people around a shared vision. And your life, your goals, and your pursuits, and most specifically today, your finances are being shaped around the story that you believe to be most compelling and the most true. A quick audit of your budget a quick audit of your spending, saving, and giving will tell you everything that you need to know about the story that you believe to be most true about your life, the world, and the kingdom of God. And the reason for this is that stories go beyond our intellect and down into our imaginations, the deep places where our dreams and our wishes reside. And so it's not all that difficult to understand then why Jesus often spoke in stories, in parables. We see here again in verse 11. While they were listening to this, what is this? Just go up in your Bible there. They're in Jericho. It's the scene with, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Nicodemus. No, Zacchaeus. Oh my gosh. Okay. They're listening to this, the scene with Zacchaeus. Jesus says these famous words, son of man came to seek and save the lost. And he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. So now Luke is gonna tell us the occasion for this parable, why Jesus told this parable in this place at this time, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at one, once once. So we see here from Luke 19 that parables not only convey truth, but they also correct our expectations. As the gospel of Luke is unfolding, we see Jesus slowly but intentionally making his way toward 
Jerusalem. He is currently in a town called Jericho. Now, if you know anything about biblical history, you know that Jericho played a really important role back in the book of Joshua as God's people were gonna claim their land. It all begins in Jericho. It's the staging grounds. It's the starting point of God's people claiming their land. And so here's Jesus in Jericho, 15 miles away from Jerusalem, which at this present moment is a Roman-occupied capital. And the people are anticipating an immediate and sudden appearance of God's kingdom in all of its triumph and all of its glory. They have so many expectations about this very moment and this man named Jesus. And he essentially says, yes and no. And tells them a parable, which describes four things that we're gonna look at today. It describes Jesus's absence, Jesus's then sudden arrival, the fact that we will all stand and give an account before the king, and then ultimately the anticipation that we ought to live with. So let's begin with the theme of absence. Look with me again in verses 12 through 14. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return, or as some translations read, to receive the kingdom and return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But... His subjects hated him, and they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. So again, the people around Jesus are anticipating that he's gonna go to Jerusalem and take the kingdom by force, that this is a moment of conquest, and they are expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately. But through this parable, Jesus is showing them that he first must go away for a period of time to not take the kingdom, but to receive the kingdom. Now, a key feature of parables is that they're relatable, but that's difficult for us 2,000 years later. But this certainly would have resonated with the people at this time, especially those who were in Jericho, which was the prior home of a man named Archelaus. History tells us that in the year 4 BC, Herod Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, traveled to Rome after the death of his father to appear before Caesar in hopes of being given the crown. This was the custom of nobles, the soon-be or wannabe kings of the time to travel to the center of the empire for their coronation ceremony, and then they would return back home with the crown. The problem was, however, Archelaus was despised by all the people. They did not like this man. So they sent a delegation of about 50 people to Rome to appeal this whole thing, appear before Caesar, and beg him not to make this man king. Caesar is convinced. He's not given the title. He's sent home with a lesser title. I believe it was Tetrarch. And then 10 years later, he's resummoned to Rome, and he's stripped of all authority, and then he's exiled forever. So Jesus takes this historic account, the framework of this history, and then he tells the story of another son, an heir of the kingdom, who went to a far off land in order to be anointed king, that there would be people who hated him, 
who didn't want him to be king and would do whatever it takes to try to stop him. Does any of this sound familiar? Yeah. So Jesus is preparing the people for what is about to happen in Jerusalem, his mixed reception, his betrayal, his death, and then ultimately his departure. Now we know that Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem, not in triumph, but in humility. It's in the very next scene here. And he's going to go not to take the throne back from Israel's enemies, he's going into Jerusalem to offer his own life for the sake of his enemies. And it will be a coronation ceremony of sorts, but this time he will receive a crown of thorns. His death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God, this is Jesus's departure to receive his kingdom authority. His death, resurrection, and ascension is the victory march of Christ. The Apostle Paul would tell us this in Ephesians chapter one. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and here's this word, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, not in the church. God is head over, Christ is head over everything for the sake of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So as Christians, we tend to focus on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for a good reason, right? If someone were to say, tell me about Jesus, I hope that you conclude with, well, he died, he rose again on the third day. And this is true, but it's often to the neglect of the ascension of Jesus Christ. As one author put it, for many of us, the story of Jesus is this, he died, he rose, and then pff, he was vaporized. Well, where'd he go? I don't know, he like vanished. But like where? I, like clouds, I think? Is, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? I don't know. Too many questions about the ascension here. I don't know. Well, in John's gospel, Jesus says explicitly, it is for your good that I go away so that I can send the Holy Spirit, the helper to you. It's for your good. Now, we tend to think of people leaving like fathers walked out or a spouse left or children suddenly moved away, or an estranged sibling, or that moment where your friends just sort of disappeared. They began to ghost you and you haven't heard from them since. Absence does not make the heart grow fonder if it is, if it is experienced as abandonment. And so it's really hard to imagine how on earth it is beneficial for Jesus to go away from us unless we understand what Jesus is accomplishing in his departure. In John's gospel, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul says that Jesus ascended higher than the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So we step back and we put it all together and what we see is something beautiful. The Bible describes for us 
that Jesus has gone to receive a kingdom, to prepare our place in it in order to return in majesty and might, bringing with him the kingdom in all of its glory to the furthest corners of the universe in order to bring to completion the renewal of all things in our place there with him. We see his absence. But secondly, we see his arrival. We see his arrival. Look with me again in verse 15. He was made king, however. I like, it's sort of, Luke is being cheeky there. They tried. He was made king, however, and he returned home. Now, I have five children. Four out of five of them are teenagers. And all my children live upstairs. The upstairs is theirs. My wife is smart. She never goes up there. <laughs> and you think I'm joking? Never. She's a very involved mother, but she has boundaries. I am an idiot. And I will venture up there and immediately regret it. I venture up into the chaotic abyss and discover pathways carved on the ground between a mix of dirty and clean laundry, which is a, just a pet peeve of mine, and a mix of sports equipment and God knows what, just all on the ground. So I got smart. I started to give them a warning. I'm coming up in five minutes. Don't make me regret it. What do I immediately hear? We have a, you know, the upstairs is loud. Everything is just amplified downstairs. And I just hear chaotic movement. Just people moving everywhere. It's like a tornado is happening upstairs as they start to try to get the upstairs in order. Now, as much as the five-minute warning gives them a good head start, it's my best shot of not losing my mind or my salvation while we're at it. <laughs> and it has been generally good for our family. The sudden appearance, the sudden, unannounced appearance is going to give me the truest version of what the heck is going on up there. And I get to see whether or not they have consistently cared for this realm that has been entrusted into their care. This parable is highlighting the sudden nature of Jesus's return. It is without warning. There is no last minute heads up so that then the servants can start taking him serious and get invested. No chance to sort of scramble to get things in order. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Sudden. I've heard uh, a number of people say things like this. I'm waiting until I get older to devote my life to God. I'm waiting until I'm an adult to take serious the things of God. Or I'm waiting until I'm out of college to really find and join a church. Or I'm, I'm waiting until I'm married to then take God serious about his vision for sexual wholeness. Or I'm waiting until I have the job, my dream job, or a little bit more money, or I'm in a mortgage, or I've got the financial stability I've been working for before I become a faithful and generous giver. Or I'm waiting to, you know, I'm working hard at this point in my life so that when I retire, then I'm gonna devote my time and effort and attention to the kingdom of God. I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna wait, thinking 
that the longer that we wait, the easier that it will become to be invested in God's kingdom, when in reality, the very opposite is true. The longer that we wait, the more that we defer obedience to God, the less invested we'll ever be. This parable shows us that it's faithfulness in the small things. What are the small things? This is a novel idea. It's what's in your life right now. Not the things that you're anticipating, not the things that you hope are coming. It's like what's right in front of you, the things that you often overlook and neglect. Faithfulness in the small things today is what then prepares us for faithfulness in the big things tomorrow, whether it's in this life or it's in eternity, when it comes to opportunities that may come in the years to come, and ultimately when it comes to ruling and reigning with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. You want a good idea what your future is gonna look like? I can tell you, I'm not a prophet and I don't have a crystal ball. What is your future gonna look like? Well, here's an easy way to know. Look at the patterns that you're setting today. And those patterns will just be amplified tomorrow. And like in this parable, there is no five minute warning. When the king returns and we stand before him, I love the way that C.S. Lewis put it. He said, when the author walks on the stage, the play is over. What is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive of comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror in every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. He goes on to say, that will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now. Today, as you sit under my voice, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or we must leave it. And I think it's necessary to do a little theological work here. In Jesus' first coming, he came to be judged, condemned, and to die in the place of his enemies. In Christ's second coming, he will come to judge his enemies as is severely illustrated in that final scene in this passage. The reality is that apart from God's gracious intervention in our lives, all of us, and I mean all of us, are at war with Jesus. Apart from God's intervention in our lives, we do not stand with Jesus, we stand against him. We are like those enemies that say, we don't want this man to be our king. 
We don't want him king over our lives. We don't want him king over our time. We don't want him king over our bodies. We certainly don't want him king over our money. Naturally, we are enemies to his reign. Naturally, we resist his authority whenever we sin, whenever we disregard God's word, whenever we choose to go our own way. What we're doing is we're usurping his authority and attempting to establish our own sovereign reign. It's what one theologian described as cosmic treason but the grace is found in this opportunity to receive Christ as king and to respond to him in faith today grace is found in the fact that you and I right now at this very moment we are living in a season of God's profound patience and profound kindness that is being extended to you and I in order to repent and to turn to Christ for salvation so that we come under his healing reign that turns enemies into friends and wicked servants into faithful servants. So that like the two servants mentioned first in this parable, so that you and I can call upon Jesus as Lord and approach him without terror without fingers crossed and uncertainty, but with confidence, with joy, and with the hope of reward. Now, a little aside here, it's interesting that the wicked servant accuses the king of taking what is not his and reaping what he has not sown. Now, I highly doubt that the servant understands it at the time, but this is actually a beautiful description of the gospel of Jesus. This describes the way that we come into the kingdom of God. I'm not a part of the kingdom of God based on my earning. I'm not a part of the kingdom of God based on my faithfulness. I and anyone else is a part of the kingdom of God based on Jesus, all that he is and all that he has done for us. So track with me. The gospel is the invitation for me to receive what is not mine, and the gospel is an invitation to reap what I have not sown, to then take what has been graciously entrusted into my care and then put it back into service to the kingdom of God in a way that will yield beyond my wildest imagination. You guys still with me? Okay, so we see his absence, we see his arrival, but third, we see a theme of accountability. Look with me again in verses 15 through 20. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came back and said, Sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. Apparently, the master has 10 cities to give away. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. So in preparation for his departure, he calls together 10 of his servants, and he entrusts each of them with a mina. Now, a mina was a unit of money equivalent to about 100 days' wages. And he gives it to them. And he says in verse 13, Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So the servants are called to put his money 
to work. They are accountable to fulfill their master's wishes, not their own wishes. And here's why, because what they have is not theirs, what they have is his. And they realize this, Sir Yormina has earned 10. Do you catch that? Sir Yormina has earned five more. So this is where we get the idea of biblical stewardship. What we have is actually his. We are stewards of what's in our possession, but we are not owners. And I mean this, no matter how hard you've worked, no matter what your story of success is, no matter if you've got the rags to riches story or you inherited every cent of it, everything that we have is his. We are stewards, not owners. And those resources are in our care for one reason, for one explicit reason, in order to be put in service of our master. Why do I have what I have in my life for the sake of the kingdom of God? But notice something. There are no specifics given here. The master is not a micromanager. No, like, make sure you put it in a mutual fund or make sure you put it in a bond or make sure you buy real estate or a stock market or go here and talk to so-and-so. They'll set you up with a good investment. I got this broker you really need to talk to. No. Now, there is accountability. Each servant must give an account. Each servant must stand before him and give an account. And guess what? We, too, will stand and give an account before Jesus for what has been entrusted into our lives. Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body in this life, whether good or bad. So there is accountability, but also there is abundant freedom. He just simply tells his servants, put it to work. That is his instruction. Put this to work, invest it, get creative, take some risks, start something, do something. I love the way Kevin DeYoung put it. Go get a job, provided it's not wicked. Go live somewhere in something with somebody or nobody. (laughs) But put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future and for God's sake, Start making some decisions in your life. Don't wait. If you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will be in God's will. So just go out and do something. I love it. I get to like come in here and say crazy things like that and then leave. (laughs) I was just telling Dom though, as I was preparing for this message, one of the members in our church, this is often a question among young people. What should I do? Where should I move? What should I be doing with my life, work, and school? And they had a job opportunity across the country. And I was like, hey, I just read this quote. And it's not gonna feel helpful right now. But it's going to be. Because I don't want you to get frozen in that like gridlock of like, am I making the perfect decision? Maybe you will hear audibly. Maybe it'll be written on the sky. Or maybe Jesus will say, go do something. The Christian life is about being responsible. I have to put that caveat in there. 
but it's also about risk-taking. Christian life is about stepping out into faith, moving forward into uncertainty, putting our comfort, our ease, our security, and listen, even our own lives on the line for the sake of the kingdom of God and the advancement of the gospel message to the nations. Why? Because our hope is in eternity. A young man named Jim Elliott, maybe you heard that name before, died for the sake of the gospel in his 20s. They found this writing, this sentence in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's a mouthful, so I wanna leave that up there just for a moment. He is no fool who gives the possessions of this life that he cannot keep or take with him in order to gain that which he cannot lose in eternity. Now, as you look at this parable, something you need to notice is that servants of the king are not rewarded for playing it safe. Some of us may even take pride in being the one who plays it safe, by playing it safe. But if I'm reading this right, it's the servant who plays it safe that is severely rebuked and then stripped of everything that they have. Which I think leads us to this conclusion that the tighter that we hold to things right now, the tighter that we hold to earthly riches, the more that we forfeit in the long run, the more that we forfeit in eternity. You can have it now. You can have it in eternity. But you can't cling to both. Now think about how obsessed we get about doing the right thing, the ideal thing. Finding the ideal way to invest our time. Finding the ideal way to invest our money and our natural gifts and our spiritual gifts, waiting so long that sometimes we never really invest in anything at all. Like the unfaithful servant, many of us live in fear. Think about what we've lived through as the generations that are represented here. We've lived through some recessions. We've lived through political unrest. We've lived through global pandemic. We've lived through trying times. And then think about individually. Some of us came from homes like Dom camping in Mojave Desert, for God's sake. Some of us came from homes where there was financial instability or we lacked significantly. Some maybe have faced tragedy in your home where you were just like all of your savings was drained because of something that came out of left field. We all have our unique stories. But that fear isn't just financial, that fear is deeply theological. Fear around our finances is not truly understanding the character of Jesus. Fear when it comes to our finances is not trusting that Jesus is coming back. Fear around our finances is not really understanding the abounding nature of God's provision that we could never outgive God, that we could never bankrupt the kingdom of God. In fact, the wicked servant reveals his heart. He's not right, he didn't act right, but he's honest. And he reveals his heart in this way. Then another servant came, verse 20, and said, Sir, here is your 
mina, I have kept it, pause real quick. So you see the breakdown in that statement? Here is your mina and I have kept it. That's how you know that things are going bad. So here is your mina, I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth, a handkerchief. And here's the reason I was afraid of you because you are a hard man and you take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. He's bearing his heart, he's showing his thought process behind his failure to invest. By the way, the king is not going to affirm this assessment of his character. He essentially says, all right, let me judge you based on your own words. Let me judge you based on your own misconceptions about me. If you really thought I was this kind of man, if you thought I was an unjust ruler that reaps where I do not sow, then why the heck did you not put it in the bank to at least earn some interest? You know what I think? I think that the servant's bearing his heart, but there's one portion that he's not admitting here. I think that he didn't actually think his master was ever coming back. I think, I would venture to say that this is the entire point of this parable. He says, put this money to work until I come back. Or let's say it differently. Put this money to work as if you believe I actually am coming back. How we allocate our time, how we utilize our gifts, how we spend our money, the risks that we take, the goals we pursue, the communities we invest in, the places that we go, where we invest ourselves is so telling because they tell us two really important things about ourselves. Number one, who we believe Jesus is. If we actually think he is the good and rightful king over everything. And number two, they reveal whether or not we actually think he's coming back. Listen, I wanna be straight with you. If he's just vanished, if he is gone forever, if he's or some dead, wannabe, rejected king, well then by all means, disregard all of this. And I mean it, you owe it to yourself to disregard all of this. Be as greedy and as selfish and self-pleasing as you desire. Bury it, hoard it, put it in a handkerchief, do whatever the heck you wanna do with it. But if, or maybe better put, since Jesus is the risen and ascended king, and he is returning as he promised, then we owe him our whole life. And the only, only logical step would be to invest our everything, not in this world, but that coming kingdom. Blaise Pascal would describe faith as a wager. He says, you're betting, you're already in, there's no choice about that. And the question is, what are you going all in on? Faith, hope, goes all in on the coming kingdom. Which leads us finally to our fourth point, anticipation. This parable, I believe, is intended to set our minds and our hearts on that distant country that Jesus travels to and then the kingdom that he returns with, which has a profound impact on the way that we will live in the here and now. Again, C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity says this, 
A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since, and here's the hard word for us today, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Anticipation for what's to come transforms the way that we steward our resources in the here and now. And this has been proven throughout Christian history. History is full of stories of faithful stewards whom God used in amazing ways on earth because their hearts were set in heaven in anticipation. If you go back to the earlier portion of Luke chapter eight, what we read is that there was a group of women named Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna who bankrolled the ministry of Jesus. Did you know that? Three presumably wealthy women provided for the need so that Jesus could fulfill his earthly ministry. Rewind all the way back to the very beginning of Luke. Luke begins the gospel with this weird statement. Oh, excellent Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? Oh, it's just the rich dude who bankrolled the project of researching and writing the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts while he was at it. Fast forward 1,500 years to a man named William Tyndale. Maybe you've heard of him. He translated the Bible into our language, English. Lesser known part of the story was that he had help. There was a man named Humphrey Monmouth, wealthy man who owned a shipping company who provided significant amounts of money and also resources and protection so that when William Tyndale could continue his work of translating the Bible into English. We have Luke's gospel. We have the parable of the Minas. We have Luke 19 in English because people put their money where their mouth is. Because God called men and women, to invest themselves in the kingdom of God, here we are celebrating the work of Jesus from the gospel of Luke. And the stories go on and on and on. And I am confident standing in a room like this that there are probably countless untold stories in here as well. Men and women who have over the years faithfully given and provided resources for the continuing of this church, Reality Ventura those who have given financially to the work of overseas missions. I mean, it was like announced two different families in the announcements. This church, I don't know if you know this, has a faithful, lasting legacy of being involved in the global mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that is inspiring to other churches like the one I get to pastor. 
men and women who have given financially so that people can go preach the gospel in Central Asia. I'm sure that there are people in this room that have sold everything to go to preach the gospel in different places. People here who have cared for the poor, people here who have practiced hospitality to the least of these, people here who have formed organizations that meet the needs, uniquely meet the needs of people, and on and on and on. Luke 19 illustrates that it's because of anticipation and not just a vague anticipation of some sort of like blurry bliss to come, but the Bible tells us it's because of anticipation of reward. Nothing should motivate us more than to stand before our king on that day and hear those same words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in the small things, so I will entrust more into your care. The Bible describes heaven as a place of profound and varying rewards. Did you know this? Varying rewards. There's a reward for doing good, the Bible tells us. There's reward for seeking Jesus through faith. There's reward in heaven for those who endure persecution. There's a particular reward for loving our enemies. There's treasure in heaven being stored up for those who give generously. There's an unfading crown for those who lead faithfully. There's a crown for righteousness. There's a crown for those who persevere. There's blessing for welcoming the poor. And the greatest reward of all, which is being in the presence, the all-satisfying, life-transforming presence of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, face to face. I want to close with a story from history. It comes from the fifth century, a guy named John Chrysostom. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople. He was being persecuted by the Emperor Sedoxia and the Emperor Arcadius for preaching the gospel, and they're trying to silence him. And at first, Eudoxia threatens John with banishment if he doesn't stop preaching the gospel, to which he replies, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. Well, then I'll kill you, the empress said. No, you can't, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Well, then I'll take away your treasures. No, you can't, for my treasure's in heaven, and my heart is there too. But then I'll drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left, she said. No, you cannot, John responded. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there's nothing you can do to harm me. You hear what he's saying? There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can take from me when my everything is in Jesus. So consider this with me. What are we really risking? What are we really losing? What are we really sacrificing? What are we really giving if we already have everything in Christ Jesus? Every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, ours through Christ Jesus. So let me uh, end with the question that really frames this passage and really frames this parable. Where is your investment? Where is your investment? And I know what Jesus would say to you today. 
I can say with actual confidence that this is the way that Jesus would speak to you and encourage you today as you consider where your investment is. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Father, what, um, what a challenging, convicting parable and, and passage, but also one that is um, stirring and, and is really like calling us into action. And I really believe today, God, that today is a day where you desire to instill dignity into the heart of the person who thinks that they're just out of the game. I wanna pray for the person who thinks that there's maybe too much water under the bridge, they failed too many times in their lives, they make, made too many mistakes to ever really have any kingdom impact from this point forward. Would you tear down that lie in Jesus' name? and renew our sense of hope and courage. And would we hear your invitation to come and to come and offer our everything before you and to put all of our chips, all of our assets, all of our everything in on the kingdom of God that has no end. Release us today, Lord, from false securities, false hopes, false saviors, the false God of mammon. And Lord, restore unto us the joy and hope of eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,